Hi, everyone. This is Grace is on the Case. I'm Gracelyn Keller, and this is the second part of my two-part episode on the possibility of an active serial killer in Chicago, Illinois. If you haven't yet, head on over to the episode prior to this one to listen to part one. Otherwise, the info I'm about to dive into here won't make much sense. And with that, let's pick up where we left off last week. So in part one, I laid out all of the mysterious death cases that I believe to be connected to this possible serial killer, as well as some geographical info to help your understanding of how these cases unfolded on the streets of Chicago. Now, we left off last week on a bit of a cliffhanger where I was discussing a TikTok video put out by the Barstool Chicago account. That TikTok is in the show notes as well if you'd like to view it, but it presented many of the same cases I have already researched and connected and discussed in part one. And then it began discussing how something similar happened in Boston about 20 years ago an abnormally high amount of young men going missing from the streets after attending social functions and being found dead in the city's waterways. I had never heard of this situation in Boston, but it definitely piqued my interest, so I dug in a bit on my own. And I do just want to mention, like I did in part one, I know Barstool is not what most would consider a reputable news source for anything other than sports news, but Honestly, it was the only outlet that I could find talking about this. Every major mainstream news outlet was saying nothing about any possible connection, and nobody from Chicago law enforcement or City Hall has made any comments either. And as a journalist myself, it baffles me that nobody is probing into this more. So as frustrating as it is, I've had to do a significant amount of digging to put together this full picture for you, and that includes using some unconventional source materials backed by abundant fact-checking of my own. So anyway, I looked into mysterious deaths and drownings of young men in Boston from the 2000s, matching the pattern we've seen in Chicago. What I ended up finding was multiple true crime blogs connecting numerous cases spanning from the late 2000s all the way to the mid-2010s that match the pattern of what we've seen in Chicago. And again, no major news outlets talking about it. The first case that I believe could be connected was in 2007, when 26-year-old Dustin Willis, who was an active duty member of the U.S. Navy, went missing. His ship docked in Boston during St. Patrick's Day, so he and some friends went out to the Black Rose Pub to celebrate. That night, there was a snowstorm in Boston that produced blizzard-like conditions. When the group left the pub around 11 p.m. to walk back to their ship, snow was blowing, making visibility low. On the walk back, Dustin's friend said he kind of walked in front of them and just disappeared into the blowing snow, and they never saw him again. His friends attest that at the time Willis was sober, and his girlfriend, who had spoken on the phone with him multiple times that night, backed this claim up. His phone was found around 1 a.m., and five days later, Willis's body was recovered from the water of Long Wharf, steps away from where his phone had been discovered. Authorities quickly concluded that he had just become disoriented from alcohol and the poor visibility and walked into the water, but Willis's friends and girlfriend denied this idea, especially because he had been sober. Another Navy sailor, 24-year-old William Hurley, went missing in 2009 under very similar circumstances. 
He had moved from Florida to Boston to live with his girlfriend in December of 2007 and in October of 2009 attended a Bruins hockey game with a friend. After a few beers, Hurley told his friend that he was tired from work that day and was going to have his girlfriend come pick him up. He stepped outside to call her, asking a passerby the name of the street he was standing on. The passerby told him and he relayed this information to his girlfriend, also saying his phone was about to die. His girlfriend told him that she was minutes away and they hung up. When she arrived at the location he gave, Hurley wasn't there. She drove around looking for him, asking people if they had seen him, but had no luck. It was like he vanished into thin air, there one second and gone the next, just like Willis in 2007. Police kept everything very quiet with this case. Sound familiar? Even making no comment when Hurley's phone was found smashed. Six days after he went missing, Hurley's body was found in the Charles River. Police ruled out a mugging or robbery gone wrong as Hurley had no visible injuries and his wallet, keys, and watch were still on him when he was found. They never released an official cause of death. Four months later, 25-year-old Eugene Losick was visiting Boston overnight from the suburb he lived in to celebrate his friend's birthday. After a night out at various bars, the group returned to the hotel they were staying in, Losick included. Now, Losick was a smoker, and at 2.24 a.m. after everyone else had returned to the hotel together, CCTV caught Losick leaving the building and walking toward a park down the street, presumably for a cigarette. Friends say that he was relatively sober at this time, and the footage shows that he did not take a jacket, alluding to the fact that he wasn't going to be gone long. After waking up the next morning and realizing that Losick had not returned, the friends involved the police and a search began. Those scent dogs did pick up his scent and continually alerted to the same area of nearby Boston Harbor docks, divers could not find anything in the water. It wasn't until nine months later, in November, when Losick's body was finally found in Boston Harbor. His cause of death was never released, nor was an explanation as to why he wasn't found days after he went missing, as drowning victims typically resurface in a matter of days once decomposition begins. David Mark, a 24-year-old type 1 diabetic with Asperger's syndrome, went missing in March 2011 after driving down to Boston to visit his sister from his home in Albany, New York. Before arriving at his sister's house, he stopped at Boston Beer Works, a bar and restaurant. He ate and had a few drinks and seemed to be in good spirits, according to the employees. But Mark never made it to his sister's house once he left the restaurant. When no one could reach him, the search got serious fast because of his disability and diabetes. He could have serious health complications if he didn't receive his necessary doses of insulin. His car was found in the neighborhood his sister lived a few days after he disappeared, but there was still no sign of Mark. The only lead beyond the car was that his phone had last pinged near the Charleston Naval Yard at 6.40 p.m. the day he went missing. Six days after he disappeared, a fishing boat discovered Mark's body in the Chelsea River. No cause of death was released, and the only comment authorities would make was that they didn't suspect foul play. The Mark family disagrees. This disturbing pattern continues for several more years, with 21-year-old Franco Garcia going missing in February 2012 after leaving a bar and was found dead in the Chestnut Hill Reservoir two months later, despite numerous searches of the reservoir having already been conducted. The only comment police made was that they believed he had fallen into the water. 
23-year-old Jonathan Daly went missing in October 2012 after hanging out with his roommate. Daly was found dead in the Charles River seven days later, where his body was chained to cinder blocks. Authorities said Daly must have committed suicide and quickly moved on. 24-year-old Eric Munsell went missing in February 2014 after being escorted out of a Boston bar for causing a disturbance. His phone's location showed him traveling in the opposite direction of his apartment once he was outside. He was found dead in the Boston Harbor two months later, and police said his death was suspicious but never released a cause. 18-year-old Jose Quisp Almendro was out running errands with siblings when he went missing in October 2015. After dropping his sibling off at a store, no one was able to reach him, and he failed to return home. His car was found the following day in the Boston suburb of Quincy. Two months later, his body washed up on Saquish Beach in Plymouth, an hour away from where he was last seen. Authorities say his death was not suspicious, though the cause of death is unclear, as well as how he got all the way to Plymouth. 21-year-old Dennis George went missing in November 2015 after failing to show up for his classes at MIT in Cambridge. He was found dead in the Charles River in December with no explanation for where he had gone or how he got there. Police investigated the death as a, quote, non-homicide, unquote. I could keep going, but I think you get the idea. Same pattern as we've seen in Chicago, but over an even longer period of time, it's strange to say the least, and in my opinion, too much to be a coincidence. There have also been people theorizing online about the possibility of connections in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, another large city that sits on the shore of Lake Michigan, where similar deaths to the Boston and Chicago ones I've already discussed have occurred over the same period of years. La Crosse, Wisconsin also saw a string of unexplained drownings that fit the pattern, all throughout the 2000s and into the 2010s. Connections have also been made in cases in New York City and many towns along the Mississippi River. But the most interesting theory that I've seen floating around circles us back to the Barstool Chicago TikTok video I began this discussion with, and it has to do with a conspiracy theory called the Smiley Face Killers. Now, I had heard of this theory loosely, just being in the true crime community, but I'd never really looked into it until now. So who exactly are the Smiley Face Killers, and what do they have to do with the string of deaths I've laid out for you? It all started with Patrick McNeil, a Fordham University student who went missing in February 1997 after walking out of a Manhattan bar called the Dapper Dog. Now, the bar itself had racked up numerous citations for serving alcohol to underage patrons, noise complaints, and they had a reputation for being quite liberal with how much they would serve to people who were already clearly intoxicated. It was well known as a college dive. So on the night that McNeil went missing, he had been there for a while drinking with several friends before announcing he was going to take off and head to the subway to catch a train home to the Bronx where he lived. CCTV shows McNeil lingering outside of the bar for a while, which was later proven to be because he was waiting for a female friend who was originally going to head out with him. She was inside, still using the restroom, according to reports, and after a while of waiting, you see McNeil just take off alone, eventually walking out of view of CCTV cameras, never to be seen alive again. As he walked, many passersby noticed him, reporting later that he was staggering around and even falling down at one point. Many also reported a vehicle shadowing his movements, seeming to follow him. 
According to witness statements pieced together, this vehicle had been double parked outside the Dapper Dog and only left when McNeil did, following him down the street and around the corner. One witness even got a partial license plate number because they thought the car's behavior was suspicious. After McNeil's disappearance, great search efforts were made with no luck. A few detectives even made some comments alluding to the fact that they believed that he was still alive and just hiding out somewhere, maybe afraid to tell his parents he wanted to drop out of college or hiding from some other mistake he had made. McNeil's family and friends denied these assertions, insisting that something awful had happened. And they were right. Something awful did happen. Because McNeil was found dead in the East River, face up in only his jeans and socks. The location he was discovered in was 12 miles away from his last known location. New York City police detective Kevin Gannon was assigned to the case. Forensics between lividity and skin slippage proved that there was no way that McNeil had been in the water as long as he'd been missing. He also had rope burns around his neck and other unusual markings inconsistent with an accidental drowning. Due to these forensic clues, Gannon was eager to name the occupants of the vehicle seen tailing McNeil that night, a man and a woman per the witnesses, as persons of interest. He also wanted to start a search for the full license plate number, which would hopefully lead to the vehicle itself. He also raised the possibility of McNeil being drugged, saying that the amount of alcohol he was reported to have consumed with his height and weight did not equate to the level of intoxication he displayed that night. But Gannon was stalled by his superiors, who asserted that they all believed McNeil's death to be an accident, just a drunk college kid who fell into the water. Gannon spent the rest of the year fighting for McNeil, insisting that something more than an accident had happened. His theories fell on deaf ears. Finally, in late 1997, the medical examiner ruled the cause of death as accidental drowning, with the manner still being listed as unknown. This case haunted Gannon, who admitted himself that he'd never let go of it until it was solved. Meanwhile, New York City Police Detective Anthony Dart was dealing with a similar case, an accidental drowning that he was sure was foul play. No one would listen to him either. Now, before each of them met, they had both separately begun tracking similar cases, both in New York and across the country, looking for any case that could be connected to their own since they were both having trouble getting the foul play theories to be heard by their superiors in their own separate cases. These individual investigations led to their eventual meeting, and they began working on the project together along with Minnesota University professor Lee Gilbertson. What the three came up with was 40 cases across 11 states, all connected by what they described as unique graffiti near where all of the victims were discovered, a sort of calling card. In 2008, they went public with this theory at a press conference and argued that this graffiti meant that all of the deaths were connected and attributed them to a gang of serial killers they called the Smiley Face Killers. Patrick McNeil was labeled as Victim Zero, or the earliest known victim of the gang. This unique graffiti, typically some sort of smiley face, is where they got the name Smiley Face Killers from. They've also said that there are other graffiti marks and other signs they've noticed near alleged smiley face killer victim crime scenes, but are extremely tight-lipped about what those may be, saying that they don't want to tip off the gang or incite copycats. 
According to Gannon, there are actually 12 distinct symbols the gang uses, only one of which is a smiley face. In particular, Gannon said two are very distinctive and point to the group's ideology, though he would not go into detail about what that ideology was. Quite reasonably, they have a lot of critics, including the FBI, who came out hours after their 2008 press conference announcement to denounce it as a far-fetched conspiracy. In rebuttal, Gannon, Dart, and Gilbertson cited that it's actually far-fetched that this many young men who fit the same profile would all wind up dead in the same mysterious way. I said it in part one, and I'll say it again. I do think this goes far beyond a coincidence. So 40 cases were connected at the time of the 2008 press conference, but in 2022, that number had jumped to over 100, according to Gannon, Dart, and Gilbertson. They also said that 30 to 40 of those victims were found to have the date rape drug GHB in their system, which they argue points to homicide. GHB is a drug that, when consumed with alcohol, enhances its effects, making blackouts, lost time, loss of motor function, and intoxication very easy to attain. And while some do use it as a party drug to enhance the effects of any alcohol they consume, it's most commonly known for being a substance slipped into people's drinks to make them more easily controlled. It's colorless and odorless and isn't often looked for in a standard autopsy, meaning an accidental drowning victim would not typically be tested for it. Gannon, Dart, and Gilbertson argue that most of their victims must have had GHB or its closely related counterpart, Rohypnol, aka Rufies, in their system when they died. And they actually weren't wrong. Gannon has reported that after more testing on some victims, 30 to 40 of their 100 victims did test positive for GHB. The three allege that the Smiley Face Killer gang has thousands of members across the country that communicate through the dark web and are organized in, quote, cells, unquote, in major U.S. cities, especially concentrated in the Midwest. They assert the gang is like a traditional organized crime gang, with loyalties and hierarchies, which is why no one has given anyone else in the gang up, even if they were individually questioned or convicted for a crime. So the big question I had at this point in my spiral was why? Why would a group of thousands of people go around murdering young men across the country and stay unquestionably loyal to each other? Gannon alleges that it stems from hate. When you look at the profile of the victims connected to this group, they're almost always young white men who have a lot going for them. They're in college or have good jobs. Many are athletes or have achievements and honors in other areas. They're often good looking and many are described by friends as ladies men. Additionally, almost all of the men were in school to go into or were working in the lucrative and highly regarded STEM field. Gannon said of the victims they've connected, 40 were engineers and 10 to 20 were either doctors, lawyers, or other criminal justice professionals. Gannon also alleges that there's some sort of ritualistic aspect that he would not discuss in detail, which again points to the group ideology he mentioned but won't elaborate on either. But he said he believes the driving force behind this group is hate for this type of man, the young, the attractive, the high-achieving. At the end of the day, all three of the men behind the smiley face killer theory want the same thing, for it to be taken seriously. They feel law enforcement hasn't done nearly enough, and despite turning heaps of evidence and their own research over to authorities, the trio has been largely ignored. 
Gannon even said the killings have picked up in the last 10 years, saying the group is probably getting comfortable knowing that law enforcement doesn't believe they exist. So is there actually a gang of serial killers all over the country preying on young men and making their deaths look like accidental drownings? Is the smiley face killer theory real? If I've learned anything from being immersed in the true crime community, it's that sometimes the truth can be even more far-fetched than fiction. I mean, look at people like Israel Keys. There is definitely darkness and evil out there beyond most people's knowledge. Who knows what's possible? What I do know for certain is that people lose their lives every day by attempting to enter bodies of water while intoxicated or otherwise impaired, and that water safety is no joke, especially when consuming alcohol. Regardless of what you believe in this case, please, please, please make safe choices and always pay attention to your surroundings. And that is all I've got for you this week, and that wraps up our second part of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed. All of my source material is listed in the show notes and on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com, and you can contact me there or through Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. I'll see you all for our next case. Music.